welcome to Sacred Nature Radio. I'm your host, David Campbell. The Last Words of Thrice Great Hermes Wise words, although written by my decaying hand, remain imperishable through time, imbued with the medicine of immortality by the All-Master. Be unseen and undiscovered by all those who will come and go, wandering the wastelands of life. Be hidden until an older heaven births human beings who are worthy of your wisdom. Having sounded this prayer over the works of his hands, Hermes was received in the sanctuary of eternity. In this episode, I am going to delve into what's known as the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father Prayer, and possibilities of alternate translations, as well as the Corpus Hermeticum and a translation called the Hermetica, which I enjoy. And what I wanted to do at the beginning of this episode is invite you to come at it with an open mind. Of course, my commentary is just my opinion, and I'll tell you where I come from, which is that I grew up Catholic, my mother was Catholic, and I never felt fully satisfied with the answers I was given in church and by the community of people I met through church about my spiritual yearnings. So at a young age, in my, my teenage years, I explored Zen meditation, other forms of meditation, things like Reiki. And through that, I came to have a really direct relationship with spirituality. And I come back now, and I can understand it from a Christian perspective as a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's where, that's a good bridge between a lot of Eastern and Western thinking, is the idea of the Holy Spirit in Chinese, there's the term shen, which I think is very similar. It's a very, it, it lives within us as, you know, a source of our consciousness, but it's also transcendental in nature. And even in quantum physics, there's some theorists who've posited the idea of a universal field of mind, which might be necessary for some of the effects of observation that we see on the subatomic world. So for me, I, I love seeking truth, and I don't think I have all the answers. I think there's always going to be an aspect of mystery, both coming at it from a spiritual perspective as well as a scientific perspective. You know, I look at it as truth-seeking. If we take it internally, it's a spiritual path. If we take it externally, it's a scientific path. But ultimately, both are about navigating mystery, you know, pushing the bounds of what we know or what we think we know toward a deeper truth. And that's a never-ending process because there's always more mystery. It's infinite in nature. And I think that humility that that brings is the path to wisdom. When we acknowledge that we don't know, we can't fully understand God or truth, then we can come at it with enough humility to actually learn something. So I invite you to come at it from that perspective. Of course, I have my 
beliefs and ideas that I come at it with, and I don't mean them to offend anyone in particular. I am kind of an unorthodox thinker. I love ancient languages. I have experience in, I learned Latin and how to translate Latin in high school and college. I learned classical Chinese, at least how to translate it into English when I was in my doctoral program for Chinese medicine. And one of the things that I learned in the process of translation is that every translation is an interpretation. Now, my goal when I translate is to put as little interpretation as possible, to be as literal as possible. And what I would argue is a good translator should be as literal as possible in the translation and then separate their own commentary and interpretation so that it's obvious that it's commentary. That to me is the most ethical thing to do in representing an ancient text. However, that is not common practice. And for even texts like the Bible, as much as people trust the translations, they were translated in political contexts. And I would even argue the Bible itself was originally constructed in a political context. You know, it was ancient Rome and its transition from the pagan gods of astrotheology to this new religion that it co-opted from the followers of Jesus who they had persecuted. They took that, and from the historical evidence that I've seen, they also took this cult of Isis, Osiris, and Horus, which was becoming popular, and they combined the powerful symbols of the Egyptian cult with the story of the life and miracles of Jesus to create a state religion. So for me, I, I love learning also about the stories that didn't make it into the Bible, things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gnostic Gospels, things that were possibly a part of early Christianity before it became the Roman state religion. That's an unorthodox view of Christianity that not everyone agrees with, and that's fine if you don't agree with it. For me, I love religions in general. I look at humanity as all of us equally have a spiritual yearning for truth, and every religion or great philosophy that's lasted through many generations in a culture becomes the repository of that culture's yearning, that culture's exploration of spiritual truths. And so for me, I look at it as branches from a great tree of knowledge that if we're able to find the right lens or perspective on each one, we can bring them together into a more full understanding. Not everyone would agree with me, and I don't mean that actually in a pluralist way. So I have a difficult relationship with things like the Unitarian Universalists, because I feel like they flatten the process of actually coming to understand different religions by just sort of equating them. There's not, for me, enough nuance in how they're brought together under that one roof, because for me, there still are truths, and there are different ways of coming at them, but there are, within every culture, there's also those who might, I'll use the word corrupt, or turn spiritual knowledge toward sort of self-aggrandizement. This is a very common thing in the modern times. It probably always has been a common thing. Everyone knows stories about gurus who end up basically with a harem of uh, <laughs> sexual exploits. It's the thing about spiritual power, which can be cultivated, 
is it can also be very corrupted because it has a very powerful effect on people's minds and and spirits and so it produces incredible charisma but then can be used for control and deception and i think anytime it starts to veer in that direction this is where i would call it a dark art at that point anytime it takes away individual sovereignty from another person and i think that goes on whether people are aware that's what they're doing or not i think some people are and i think it's hidden but i think a lot of powerful people are involved in certain dark arts and this is a reality once you know that spirituality is real and and i would argue we have the scientific evidence to prove it if you are interested look into near-death experiences there's a huge research project that you can find it's online they have a foundation they've collected near-death experiences from all over the world they have tens of thousands of them and it's very interesting the work that they've done people will especially children will remember past lives and these things can be verified so again the near-death experiences one thing people often experience during that time is an out-of-body experience where they can see things very far away from where their body is, often their loved ones, and then they can verify after the fact that what they saw really happened. Or they can see their own body looking at it from the corner of the room and they can verify that they know what the doctors did to revive them. These kinds of things. Children will often have memories of a past life. Sometimes it's their own ancestors, you know, their grandparents or great-grandparents that they remember being, and sometimes those stories can be verified. There's a famous case where a child remembered, I think, even the serial number on a plane that went down in World War II, and they were able to find the plane and verify that he knew too much about it for it to just be coincidence. It was clear that there was something It doesn't necessarily mean that it was reincarnation. Maybe those memories had been transferred in some other way. Then you get into psi, what a lot of people would call psychic phenomena. It's been very well researched, especially by uh, Dean Radin. He's spent 30 or maybe up to 40 years at this point researching psi effects in laboratory settings with as much controls as you can possibly have and proven without a shadow of a doubt that there are effects, whether it's telepathic, presentiment or precognition. His newest book, he's even proven that basically magical techniques have effects on people, including things like what we might generally call like a voodoo doll, creating a doll that represents someone and then doing actions toward it does actually seem to affect the person. In light of all that, I mean, this is what our ancestors would call spirituality. This is the spiritual level of reality and it is a physical reality. or it is a a layer of our physical reality. I think it goes beyond our physical reality as well. And that gets into like, what is the afterlife? But I don't have any interest in answering that question today. But what I'll say is I'm very much convinced that spirituality is very real. I think our culture is going through a moment of reawakening to that. We've gone through a time period of fewer and fewer people believing in the traditional religions and those used to be where people built their relationship with spirit i think for whatever reasons an industrialization and and technological advance has made people feel dissatisfied with those traditions or many people not all people but i think now is a good time to come back to some of that wisdom so this episode is really about exploring just some of the ideas and really trying to wrestle with how we move toward truth, how we seek truth in 
our process of cultivating spiritual wisdom and spiritual clarity, harmony, and peace. I think these are the... And I, I like to differentiate. So I'll say my understanding of occult versus esoteric. So the esoteric is the sort of deeper, commonly misunderstood or commonly just not known about aspects of a religion. So there's a lot of esoteric writings in Christianity written by monks and saints and different thinkers who got really deep into certain concepts. And that's very esoteric. Most Christians have no relationship with that writing versus something that's truly occult. And occult means hidden. And now some people use the term occult even when there's sort of self-cultivation techniques that are not nefarious. I would not use that. I'd call that esoteric still. Versus truly occult to me, the reason why it's hidden is because it is nefarious. Because it, and not everyone uses the words this way, but my way of thinking about it is the esoteric is still on the side of the light, developing a relationship with the divine, with peace and harmony and truth. Once something becomes a cult, it's because there's an aspect of deception in it. This is why it has to remain hidden. And once deception comes into your relationship with spirit, I think that's when it becomes a dark art. That's when it becomes something that is about deceiving people, which takes away their sovereignty, their ability to consent. And at that point, it becomes corrupted. It becomes a means of control and power-seeking. So for me, that's um, ultimately... The way I look at it, it's best to avoid the occult. There's plenty of stories, even in just common knowledge, about making a deal with the devil. And no one wins <laughs> when they make a deal with the devil, right? They might get a lot of power and fame, but the devil always wants his payment. And uh, you don't want to have to pay with your soul, because that's eternal. You'd rather be poor in this life than pay with your eternal soul. Eternity's a lot longer than a lifetime. So... On that note, there's also the archetype of the hermit. And the interesting thing about the term hermit is it, it comes from the word Hermes, as does hermeneutics and hermetic. Hermes being the Greek name for the god Mercury, the messenger of the gods. And this term is often associated with monks, sometimes with monks in seclusion by themselves, often with people who have a lot of esoteric knowledge. Well, the reason for that is the corpus hermeticum, is a text that's always existed sort of on the margins of what's allowed by orthodox religions, because I believe it sort of informs, in a way, how to think about the Holy Spirit as the nature of God. But because it's written originally, it wasn't by Hermes Trismegistus, it was by Thoth, thrice great. There's arguments about how ancient that idea is, but it's clearly thousands of years prior to Christianity in Egypt. Now, the Corpus Hermeticum, different people have different arguments about when it actually came together. It was written in ancient Greek, but it was supposedly a translation from the Egyptian. So I love how it characterizes what it calls Atum, which a lot of people think, oh, Atum Ra, that's the sun god. Well, Ra is the representative of Atum as a sun god, and Atum is really expressed as the creator, and that being which moves through all things. And so I feel like that has a very similar description to the Christian God, and I enjoy the way 
autumn is described in the text. So, without further ado, we'll get right into it. The first passage that I wanted to share is a blog post on thebeautifulrevolution.org that I recently was made aware of on Facebook. It's the Our Father Prayer, translated by Dr. Neil Douglas Klotz, who has been studying Aramaic linguistics and Middle Eastern tradition and culture for almost 40 years, according to this blog post. It claims that the everyday spoken language of Jesus would have been Aramaic. And it says, according to Dr. Klotz, the Lord's Prayer begins with Our Father, a translation of the word Abba, but the actual Aramaic translation is Abun, which is a blending of Abba and Wun, which is Abba for father, Wun for womb, Jesus' recognition of the masculine and feminine source of creation. I would call that both and neither. Creation or the creator is pre-sexual. We are sexed because we are literally sections. It's the same root. In Aramaic, there can be various translations. This is one possible translation from Aramaic of the Lord's Prayer according to Dr. Klotz. O birther, father-mother of the cosmos, you create all that moves in light. Focus your light within us, make it useful, as the rays of a beacon show the way. Create your reign of unity now, through our fiery hearts and willing hands. Your one desire then acts with ours, as in all light, so in all forms. Grant what we need each day in bread and insight, subsistence for the call of growing life. Loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt. Don't let us enter forgetfulness, but free us from unripeness. From you is born all ruling will, the power and life to do, the song that beautifies all. From age to age it renews. Amen. Truly power to these statements. May they be the source from which all my actions grow. So this is obviously a bit different from what we're used to seeing as the Our Father prayer or the Lord's prayer. So we normally are used to hearing Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. There's also sometimes added, Lord, deliver us from every evil and grant us peace in our day. For yours is the power and glory now and forever and ever. So we can see it's quite different, but there's some cohesion across them. I always think it's interesting that God is particularly masculine, I think, in the English language. And according to this, the Aramaic would have blended the masculine and feminine when speaking about the Creator which makes more sense to me because how could it be either? There's also a version of this prayer. What was actually posted on social media was a little bit different than what 
they had on this blog post. So the one I first saw was, O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with our desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, the birth, power, and fulfillment, as all is gathered and made whole once again, and so it is. When we translate from ancient languages, we could really make a lot of these make sense. Ancient languages have fewer vocabulary words, so each word has more dimensions of meaning than we generally have in our modern language. I think English is the language with the most vocabulary words. One of my arguments is the reason English has become such a popular language globally is actually because it's capable, because of its loose grammatical rules, it's actually capable of including vocabularies from other languages and making those words work in in the sentence structures that we're used to because we have such a diversity of sentence structures where in other languages the rules are much more strict in terms of how words can be used and what their endings might be and because of that the language of French comes to mind even German if they want to create a new word in French or German, they have to actually construct it so that it works in their language versus in English where we can literally import Chinese words or French words or really almost any language and just jam them in there and they work fine because we don't have as many rules, which is a great opportunity to be able to link different cultural worldviews, but it also leaves us with each word becoming narrower in its meaning, which makes it more difficult to translate from ancient languages with fewer vocabulary words, wherein each word could be taken in multiple ways, and even then you have a whole sentence or, you know, paragraph that has many layers of meaning that only come through through multiple readings and deep contemplation, which is why you would see like a Orthodox Hasidic Jewish person reading, you know, a Hebrew Torah and davening because they can read the same passage over and over and over and contemplate it deeper and deeper. And this is, in my opinion, generally true of ancient languages. And even in English, we can find deep passages that give us this depth in terms of the actual translations, you know, the common version of the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father Prayer, I, I've been really looking at it more deeply lately. And, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, a lot of people go, well, you know, it's not really a man in the sky. But, you know, it's interesting. There is a man in the sky. The constellation Orion, which was to the Egyptians Osiris, and Osiris handed down 42 laws, 
10 of those are pretty much the Ten Commandments. And Osiris was given credit, he and his wife Isis, or Aset, were given credit with helping humanity to begin the first agriculture, which helped humanity to end the practice of cannibalism, which is probably a pretty important transition if we want to have any kind of civilization. So there is a sense of a masculine presence in heaven or in the cosmic, in the sky, in the stars. You know, divine means starlight in its original etymology, just like the word deva. And there's a woman in the sky. Uh, we now call it Virgo, but to the ancients, that was Isis or Aset or Ishtar, depending on the time period and the place. But in Catholicism, there's still sort of this symbol of the mother through Mary, which took on a lot of the same symbolism, which the Catholic Church gets criticized for still to this day. But my opinion is the Catholic Church was originally created to merge the two most popular religions that were rising at the time, which were Christianity and the cult of Isis. The cult of Isis understood that it was Isis and Osiris who came together to produce Horus, and so that symbology was merged into early Catholicism purposefully when they created the state religion of Catholicism. So I think it's interesting here the way they translate it to, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is a hermetic principle, as above, so below, on earth as it is in heaven. And what this is telling us is that the divine will, the God's will, is in the stars, it's in heaven. The starry sky of the night was the only thing on television for over 100,000 years, as Gordon White likes to say. And it was the way in which people remembered their ancient stories and told their ancient stories, was looking up at the sky. And depending on the time of year, you would see different sections of the sky, different constellations. And those were the prompts for the stories that would be told at that time of year. Now the planets will wander through the constellations, at least through the zodiacal constellations. The rest of the constellations are not on the zodiacal plane, so the planets wouldn't move through them. But then that combination of the planetary bodies in the zodiacal constellations would give us information about what the sort of cosmic moment is pointing toward. And astrology was originally basically described as mathematics. Astrologers were considered mathematicians because mathematics was originally derived to be able to describe the movements of the planets in the zodiac because it would be very difficult to both predict future transits as well as calculate past transits if you didn't have mathematical principles to do this. And the oldest computer known is the Antikytheric mechanism, which was found at the bottom of the Mediterranean. It was a mechanical computer used to calculate the locations of the planets. So astrology is actually a mother science which birthed astronomy, mathematics, as well as a lot of what we take for granted as physics basically the scientific process through observation and then abstracting principles, laws of physics, now we might call them, that guide the system. And give us this day our daily bread. Why bread and not another food? Because bread is the product of agriculture and fermentation. I think this is the reason why bread is the sacrament in both Catholic and Christian churches, because why is bread the body of Christ? Because it's we eat the bread so that we don't eat the flesh of a human. And this is the covenant with God because 
through the process of agriculture and then fermentation, which fermentation, I believe, is the first alchemy. So why is that? Well, chem is the oldest name of Osiris, and alchemy would be the way of chem. And what did chem offer us? He offered us the ability to grow grain that we could eat instead of flesh, but you can't really eat wheat or other grains raw. They're not edible. So you have to grind them down, mix them with water, and then something happens. They spontaneously start to bubble. The breath of life is the way it could be looked at. Spontaneously emerges. And if that's done correctly, bread can be folded and risen, and it becomes flesh-like, and it becomes sustaining as a food. And that's why it's the flesh of God, because it comes directly from sunlight and starlight, and it's that breath of life is breathed into it, and then it's able to sustain our bodies. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I think this idea of whether maybe it's more literal to translate that as, I think they said threads, loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt, or the other version, untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. These all kind of get at a similar idea. There's a little bit more of an interesting, I think, visual metaphor with the threads or the cords. And I think on a spiritual level, you can really actually understand if you want to think of it as karmic or just sin from a more Christian perspective. But I do think there's on an etheric level, there are actual cords and there's practices for learning to unbind these etheric cords and be released into a greater peace, a sense of freedom. What it brings up here too is the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is incredibly important. I think, you know, the longer I live, the more important I realize forgiveness is. I have a little aphorism that I came up with at one point, which is forgiveness is the price of love. And the reason I say that is love brings us closer to people. And the closer you get to someone, the more vulnerable you are to them. And that means they're more likely to hurt you. The closer you get, the more painful that becomes. So whether that's family or your spouse or your children or even just close friends, everyone's human. People make mistakes. They act out of ignorance or a lack of caring or forethought at some point. And in many instances, that can cause pain to those who are close to them. And in that, we have an opportunity to learn to forgive, even if it does cause us deep pain. And that's not to say to allow a problematic situation to go on and not change. But even if we want a situation to change, even if we have to from then on protect ourselves from that person or not be around that person. Regardless, the forgiveness is what heals our own hearts. So when we hold a grudge, when we resent someone for the pain that they've caused us, that weighs on our own heart. And I mean that in almost a literal sense. The heart is a sensory organ. The rhythms of the heart, you know, I've talked about heart rhythm variability studied by the HeartMath Institute. You can depress your heart rhythms, make them more chaotic, by having old resentments that are binding. That's why this idea of loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt. Those are the same cords, actually. Whether it's our guilt or the guilt we want to place on others, the blame, really it's just two directions of the same cords. And unless we're willing to let go of those cords, to untie them, 
release them from our hearts, they'll bind us and they weigh on our hearts. From a say, more modern perspective, they cause us to release more cortisol, more adrenaline. They keep us in a more sympathetic dominant state of our autonomic nervous system. You know, they have the negative health effects of sustained stress. They might keep us up at night, interfere with our sleep. So, you know, th these spiritual lessons have deep, profound implications for physical health. Forgiveness is one that I have found in my life is one of the most important to learn. So now let's turn to the Hermetica, The Lost Wisdom of the Pharaohs, by Timothy Freck and Peter Gandy, authors of the Jesus Mysteries. The introduction begins with a forgotten spiritual classic. The Hermetica is a collection of writings attributed to Thoth, a mythical ancient Egyptian sage whose wisdom is said to have transformed him into a god. Thoth, who was venerated in Egypt from at least 3000 BCE, is credited with the invention of sacred hieroglyphic writing, and his figure, portrayed as a scribe with the head of an ibis, can be seen in many temples and tombs. He is the dispatcher of divine messages and recorder of all human deeds. In the Great Hall of Judgment, the afterlife court of the god Osiris, Thoth would establish whether the deceased had acquired spiritual knowledge and purity and so deserved a place in the heavens. Thoth was said to have revealed to the Egyptians all knowledge on astronomy, architecture, geometry, medicine, and religion, and was believed by the ancient Greeks to be the architect of the pyramids. The Greeks, who were in awe of the knowledge and spirituality of the Egyptians, identified Thoth with their own god Hermes, the messenger of the gods and the guider of souls in the realm of the dead. To distinguish the Egyptian Hermes from their own, they gave him the title Trismegistus, meaning thrice great, to honor his sublime wisdom. The books attributed to him became collectively known as the Hermetica. Although largely unknown today, the writings attributed to Hermes Thoth have been immensely important in the history of Western thought. They profoundly influenced the Greeks and through their rediscovery in 15th century Florence helped to inspire the Renaissance, which gave birth to our modern age. The list of people who have acknowledged a debt to the Hermetica reads like a who's who of the greatest philosophers, scientists, and artists that the West has produced. Leonardo da Vinci, Dürer, Botticelli, Roger Bacon, Paracelsus, Thomas More, William Blake, Kepler, Copernicus, Isaac Newton, Sir Walter Raleigh, Milton, Ben Jonson, Daniel Defoe, Shelley and his wife Mary, Victor Hugo and Carl Jung. It heavily influenced Shakespeare, John Donne, John Dee, and all the poet philosophers who surrounded the court of Queen Elizabeth I, as well as the founding scientists of the Royal Society in London and even the leaders who inspired the Protestant Reformation in Europe. The list is endless, with the Hermetica's influence reaching well beyond the frontiers of Europe. Islamic mystics and philosophers also trace their inspiration back to thrice-great Hermes, and the esoteric tradition of the Jews equated him with their mysterious prophet Enoch. The Hermetica is a cornerstone of Western culture. In substance and importance, it is equal to well-known Eastern scriptures like the Upanishads, the Dhammapada, and the Tao Te Ching. Yet, 
Unlike these texts, which are now readily available and widely read, the works of Hermes have been lost under the dead weight of academic translations, Christian prejudice, and occult obscurities. Until now, no simplified rendering of these writings has been available to the general reader. All previous versions in the English language are very dense, impenetrable, and loaded down with notes and subtext that make them difficult to digest. This new version, however, makes this ancient wisdom more easily accessible. It presents carefully selected extracts of the Hermetic texts linked together into a narrative and rendered into easily understood English. What emerges is an inspiring and illuminating taste of a forgotten classic. The History of the Hermetica the early origins of the Hermetica are shrouded in mystery, but the evidence suggests it is a direct descendant of the ancient philosophy of the Egyptians. However, the handful of surviving works attributed to Hermes are not written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, but in Greek, Latin, and Coptic. They were collated in the city of Alexandria in Egypt during the 2nd and 3rd centuries CE. Here, the Hermetic philosophy helped inspire some of the greatest intellectual achievements of the ancient world. Alexandria was a great center of learning, surpassing even Athens. Its founder, Alexander the Great, had conquered and united Greece, Persia, Egypt, and India into one vast empire. Cultures that had grown up more or less independently were brought together, and there was no bigger melting pot than Alexandria. Into this new universal city, Cosmopolis in Greek, poured men and women of every race and nation. Greeks, Jews, Egyptians, Babylonians, Phoenicians, and even Buddhists from India associated together in relative peace. The Alexandrians were renowned for their thirst for knowledge, and under the enlightened Greek ruler Ptolemy I, a library and museum were founded where human beings first systematically collected the wisdom of the world. At its height, the Library of Alexandria housed some half a million scrolls. These included the works of Euclid, Archimedes, and the astronomer Ptolemy, who dominated the spheres of geometry, mathematics, and geography, respectively, until well into the Middle Ages. It contained the research of Aristarchus of Samos, who had shown that the Earth is one of the planets orbiting the Sun, and Eratosthenes, who had calculated the circumference of the Earth to within a few percent. Scientists of the library knew about the precession of the equinoxes and that the moon was responsible for the rhythm of the tides. Alexandria was also rich in esoteric knowledge, Pythagorism, Chaldean oracles, Greek myths, Platonic and Stoic philosophy, Judaism, Christianity, the Greek mystery schools, Zoroastrianism, astrology, alchemy, Buddhism, and of course ancient Egyptian religion were all practiced, studied, compared, and discussed. The Golden Age of Alexandria came to an end with the birth of the intolerant Christian Holy Roman Empire. Despite the sophistication and cultural achievements of the ancients, the Christians referred to them dismissively as pagans, which means country dwellers. In 415 CE, Hypatia, one of the last great scientists and pagan philosophers working at the Library of Alexandria, was seized by a mob of Christians who removed her flesh with scallop shells and burnt her remains. Their leader, Bishop Cyril, was later canonized as Saint Cyril. The great library was finally destroyed as so much pagan superstition and this wealth of knowledge was scattered to the four winds. The Christian Roman emperor, Theodosius, closed pagan temples across the empire and began the previously unknown phenomenon of book burning. 
For the West, the 5th century ushered in the thousand-year period appropriately known as the Dark Ages. Hermes and the Reawakening of Europe With the Arab Empire becoming increasingly intolerant, the owners of the Hermetic books traveled in search of a safe refuge. In the 15th century, many fled to the tolerant city-state of Florence in northern Italy, where this wisdom again inspired a great cultural flowering. In 1438, the Byzantine scholar Gemisto Plethon made available to the awestruck Florentines the entire lost works of Plato. These and other pagan works were translated into Latin for the first time. The ruler of Florence, the philanthropist and scholar Cosimo di Medici, established a new Platonic academy, a group of intellectuals and mystics who found their inspiration in the ancient pagan philosophy. It profoundly influenced great names like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Botticelli, and Raphael, who began painting pictures of the ancient pagan gods. Botticelli's Venus and Mars, for example, was painted at a precise astrological moment as a talisman of occult radiance, capable of magically transporting the viewer to an altered state of spiritual awareness. Cosimo sent out agents to look for other lost pagan works that might still be awaiting discovery. In 1460, one of them came across the lost works of thrice-great Hermes and brought them to Florence. The Florentines, already reeling from the discovery that an ancient civilization of immense sophistication had risen and fallen nearly 2,000 years before them, now believed that they had in their hands the words of the most ancient sage of them all. Cosimo ordered his young Greek scholar, Marsilio Ficino, to cease his work on translating Plato and to begin immediately on this new Egyptian text. Ficino had it ready in time to read to Cosimo just before his death. The emergence of a glorious new culture in Florence signaled the end of the Dark Ages. We call this period the Renaissance, meaning rebirth, which is a fitting name for, at the heart of the Hermetic philosophy, is the idea of being spiritually reborn. The ancient pagan wisdom arrived in Florence at a fortuitous moment in history. Within a few years, the first printing press arrived in Italy, and the pagan wisdom was printed and dispersed throughout Europe. Students of the new learning, as the Florentine experiment became known, were sent out as emissaries beginning new movements wherever they went. Rucklin, the father of the Reformation and teacher of Luther and Erasmus, left Florence and sowed the earliest seeds of the Protestant Reformation in Germany. Thomas Lenarca founded the Royal College of Physicians in London. The mathematician Nicholas of Cusa, the physician Paracelsus, the architect Brunelleschi, and the astronomer Toscanelli, whose famous map inspired Christopher Columbus, all owed their inspiration to the Florentine reawakening of the spirit of ancient paganism. Copernicus's momentous claim that the sun, not the earth, is at the center of the solar system was a choice, not a discovery made after studying Hermetic and Platonic philosophy at an Italian university. On the first page of On the Revolution of the Celestial Orbs, published in 1543, Copernicus quotes the words of thrice-great Hermes, The sun is the visible god. As in Alexandria, a thousand years earlier, the Renaissance viewed science, art, literature, and religion as parts of a unified whole to be studied together. All aspects of human life were now opened up as legitimate areas of investigation. It was a situation that challenged the authorities of the Roman Catholic Church, and in 1492, with the aid of the King of France, they crushed the Republic of Florence. Although the heady days of the new academy were over, 
This oppression was too late to prevent the ripples of its influence expanding ever outwards. Florentine scholars were dispersed across Europe and became known as the Fifth Essence, or Quintessence. The taste for all things Italian, art, sculpture, fashion, literature, and philosophy, was insatiable. Within less than 200 years, the Renaissance had conquered Europe. In England, the works of Hermes had a profound effect on the circle of courtiers surrounding Elizabeth I. Sir Philip Sidney, Sir Walter Raleigh, John Donne, Christopher Marlowe, William Shakespeare, George Chapman, and Francis Bacon were all acquainted with the works of the Egyptian sage. Elizabeth's personal astrologer, whom she referred to as her philosopher, was the enigmatic hermeticist John Dee. He was a brilliant mathematician and the first person to translate the complete works of Euclid into English. Dr. Dee owned the greatest library in England, and his home was regarded as a third university to Oxford and Cambridge. He was visited by scholars from all over Europe and made frequent journeys to Prague, where the first detailed commentaries on the Hermetica were being written. At this time, Prague was the capital of Bohemia, an enlightened republic where Hermetic scholars, Platonic philosophers, Jewish rabbis, and scientists of every nation found sanctuary at the court of Rudolf II. Europe was being ravaged by the wars of religion between Protestants and Catholics, and in Bohemia, another way was proposed, Hermeticism. Evangelists of the new Egyptian religion of thrice-great Hermes, such as Giordano Bruno, traveled extensively in Europe. Bruno interpreted the new sun-centered cosmos proposed by Copernicus in an entirely mystical way, as the rising of a new sun at the dawning of a new age. He believed that the Egyptian religion of Hermes was the ancestor of the Greek mystery schools, the religion of Moses and the Jews, and the birthplace of Christianity. In Bruno's imagination, it was now poised to become the unifying religion in which Jews, all denominations of Christians, Platonic humanists, and even Muslims could meet and resolve their differences. Bruno's courage and conviction was nowhere more clearly demonstrated than in his decision to return to Italy, where within a short time he was arrested by the Roman Catholic Church. He endured eight years of torture during which he refused to recant, and in 1600 was led out into the Square of Flowers in Rome and ceremonially burnt alive. The vision of a universal hermetic religion was faded to fade, but its influence remains strong amongst visionaries and scientists. Sir Isaac Newton, for example, like many men of his time, was passionately interested in alchemy, the patron god of which was thrice-great Hermes. Indeed, the word alchemy means from Egypt. The astronomer Kepler published quotes from the Hermetica in his greatest work, On the Harmony of the World. In 1640, the poet John Milton celebrated the wisdom of Hermes, writing, Or let my lamp at midnight hour be seen in some high lonely tower, where I may oft outwatch the bear with thrice great Hermes or unsphere, the spirit of Plato to unfold. What worlds or what vast regions hold? the immortal mind that hath forsook her mansion in this fleshy nook. The Hermetica and Early Christianity Hermetic philosophy also influenced Christianity through the Alexandrian church fathers, St. Clement and St. Origen, who synthesized pagan and Christian religious doctrines. It is due to such theologians that the Hermetic concept of the Word is found in the opening verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. 
Hermes Thoth was known to the ancients as the scribe of the gods and the master of the word. In the Hermetica, God utters a word which calms the chaotic waters of creation. The word is even called the Son of God. In Christianity, Jesus Christ, who is also called the Son of God, is identified as an embodiment of the power of the word. St. Augustine of Hippo, the influential 4th century theologian who is familiar with the works of Hermes, writes, That which is called the Christian religion existed among the ancients and never did not exist from the beginning of the human race until Christ came in the flesh, at which time the true religion which already existed began to be called Christianity. The influence of the Hermetica on early Christianity is beyond doubt. In 1945, works of Hermes were discovered amongst scriptures belonging to Gnostic Christians of the first century CE. According to a note on one of the texts, early Christian communities pressed many copies of the works of Hermes. Just a few yards from the place where these scriptures were found are ancient Egyptian tombs. These were inhabited by early Christian hermits, such as St. Pacomius, the founder of the first Christian monastic communities. The walls of these tombs are covered in hieroglyphs ascribed to the great god Thoth. They describe a spiritual rebirth into knowledge of God. In such places, early Gnostic Christians poured over the Hermetica. Under its powerful influence, they composed their own philosophy of a saving gnosis, Greek for knowledge, a direct knowledge of God bestowed by the Messiah, Jesus. The Prophecies of Hermes Pure philosophy is spiritual striving. Through constant contemplation to attain true knowledge, of autumn the one god but speaking now in prophecy i say that in times to come no one will pursue philosophy with single-mindedness and purity of heart those with a grudging and ungenerous temperament will try and prevent men discovering the priceless gift of immortality philosophy will become confused making it hard to comprehend it will be corrupted by spurious speculation it will be entangled with bewildering sciences like arithmetic, music, and geometry. The student of pure philosophy studies the sciences not as fanciful theories, but as devotion to autumn, because they reveal a universe perfectly ordered by the power of number, because measuring the depths of the sea and the forces of fire and the magnitude of physical things leads to a reverent awe at the creator's skill and wisdom because the mysteries of music bear witness to the unsurpassed talent of the supreme artist who has beautifully harmonized all things into a single whole, suffused with sweet melodies. To simply love autumn in thought with singleness of heart and to follow the goodness of his will, this is philosophy, unsullied by intrusive cravings for pointless opinions. But I foresee that, in times to come, clever intellectuals will mislead the minds of men, turning them away from pure philosophy. It will be taught that our sacred devotion was ineffectual, and that heartfelt piety and assiduous service, with which we Egyptians honor autumn, was a waste without reward. Egypt is an image of the heavens, and the whole cosmos dwells here, in this its sanctuary. But the gods will desert the earth and return to heaven, abandoning this land that was once the home of spirituality. Egypt will be forsaken and desolate, bereft of the presence of the gods, 
it will be overrun by foreigners who will neglect our sacred ways. This holy land of temples and shrines will be filled with corpses and funerals. The sacred Nile will be swollen with blood, and her waters will rise, utterly fouled with gore. Does this make you weep? There is worse to follow. This land that was a spiritual teacher to all mankind, which loved the gods with such devotion that they deigned to sojourn here on earth. This land will exceed all others in cruelty. The dead will far outnumber the living, and the survivors will be known as Egyptians by their language alone, for in their actions they will be like men of another race. O Egypt, nothing will remain of your religion but an empty tale, which even your own children will not believe. Nothing will be left to tell them of your wisdom, but old graven stones. Men will be weary of life and will cease seeing the universe as worthy of reverent wonder. Spirituality, the greatest of all blessings, will be threatened with extinction and believed a burden to be scorned. The world will no longer be loved as an incomparable work of autumn, a glorious monument to his primal goodness, an instrument of the divine will to evoke veneration and praise in the beholder. Egypt will be widowed. Every sacred voice will be silenced. Darkness will be preferred to light. No eyes will raise to heaven. The pure will be thought insane, and the impure will be honored as wise. The madman will be believed brave, and the wicked esteemed as good. Knowledge of the immortal soul will be laughed at and denied. No reverent words worthy of heaven will be heard or believed. So I, the thrice great Hermes, the first of men to attain all knowledge, have inscribed the secrets of the gods in sacred symbols and holy hieroglyphs. On these stone tablets, which I have concealed for a future world that may seek our sacred wisdom, through all-seeing mind, I myself have been the witness of the invisible things of heaven, and through contemplation come to knowledge of the truth. This knowing I have set down in these writings. The Initiation of Hermes My senses were suspended in mystic sleep, not a weary, full-fed drowsiness, but an alert and conscious emptiness. Released from my body, I flew with my thoughts, and while I soared, it seemed to me a vast and boundless being called my name. Hermes, what are you looking for? Who are you, I asked. I am the way guide, the supreme mind, the thoughts of Atom, the one god. I am with you, always and everywhere. I know your desires. Make your questions conscious, and they will be answered. Show me the nature of reality. Bless me with knowledge of autumn, I begged. Suddenly everything changed before me. Reality was opened out in a moment. I saw the boundless view. All became dissolved in light, united with one joyous love. Yet the light cast a shadow, grim and terrible, which passing downwards became like restless water, chaotically tossing forth spume like smoke and I heard an unspeakable lament, an inarticulate cry of separation. The light then uttered a word, which calmed the chaotic waters. My guide asked, Do you understand the secrets of this vision? I am the light, the mind of God, which exists before the chaotic dark waters of potentiality. My calming word is the Son of God, the idea of beautiful order, the harmony of all things with all things, 
Primal mind is parent of the word, just as, in your own experience, your human mind gives birth to speech. They cannot be divided one from the other, for life is the union of mind and word. Now fix your attention upon the light and become one with it. When he had said this, he looked into me, eye to eye, until trembling, I saw and thought limitless power within the light, to form an infinite yet ordered world, and I was amazed. I saw in the darkness of the deep, chaotic water without form, permeated with a subtle, intelligent breath of divine power. Autumn's word fell on the fertile waters, making them pregnant with all forms. Ordered by the harmony of the word, the four elements came into being, combining to create the brood of living creatures. The fiery element was articulated as the constellations of the stars, and the gods of seven heavenly bodies revolving forever in celestial circles. The word then leapt up from the elements of nature and reunited with the mind of the maker, leaving mere matter devoid of intelligence. My guide said, you have perceived the boundless primal idea, which is before the beginning. By autumn's will, the elements of nature were born as reflections of this primal thought in the waters of potentiality. These are the primary things, the prior things, the first principles of all in the universe. Autumn's word is the creative idea, the supreme limitless power, which nurtures and provides for all the things that through it are created. I have shown you everything. Why do you wait? Write the wisdom you have understood in hieroglyphic characters. Carved on stone in the holy sanctuary, make yourself a spiritual guide to those worthy of the gift of knowledge, so that through you autumn may save mankind. I was overwhelmed with gratitude to the All-Father who had graced me with the supreme vision. In awe and reverence I prayed, Please, never let me fall away from this knowledge of your being, so that I may enlighten those who are in darkness. Then, with his power in me, I began to speak. The aloof laughed at my words, but others knelt at my feet. I told them to stand and receive the seeds of wisdom, which I will sow in you with these teachings. So listen, men of clay. If you do not pay keen attention, my words will fly past you and wing their way back to the source from which they come. The Being of Autumn Give me your whole awareness and concentrate your thoughts, for knowledge of Autumn's being requires deep insight, which only comes as a gift of grace. It is like a plunging torrent of water whose swiftness outstrips any man who strives to follow it, leaving behind not only the hearer, but even the teacher himself. To conceive of autumn is difficult. To define him is impossible. The imperfect and the impermanent cannot easily apprehend the eternally perfected. Autumn is whole and constant. In himself he is motionless, yet he is self-moving. He is immaculate, incorruptible, and everlasting. He is the supreme absolute reality. He is filled with ideas which are imperceptible to the senses, and with all-embracing knowledge. Autumn is primal mind. He is too great to be called by the name Autumn. He is hidden, yet obvious everywhere. His being is known through thought alone, yet we see his form before our eyes. He is bodiless, yet embodied in everything. There is nothing which he is not. 
He has no name, because all names are his name. He is the unity in all things, so we must know him by all names, and call everything Atom. He is the root and source of all. Everything has a source, except this source itself, which springs from nothing. Atom is complete, like the number one, which remains itself whether multiplied or divided, and yet generates all numbers. Autumn is the whole, which contains everything. He is one, not two. He is all, not many. The all is not many separate things, but the oneness that subsumes the parts. The all and the one are identical. You think that things are many, when you view them as separate. But when you see they all hang on the one, and flow from the one, you will realize they are united, linked together, and connected by a chain of being, from the highest to the lowest, all subject to the will of Atom. The cosmos is one as the sun is one. The moon is one and the earth is one. Do you think there are many gods? That's absurd. God is one. Atom alone is the creator of all that is immortal and all that is mutable. If that seems incredible, just consider yourself. You see, speak, hear, touch, taste, walk, think, and breathe. It is not a different you who does these various things, but one being who does them all. To understand how Autumn makes all things, consider a farmer sowing seeds. Here wheat, there barley, now planting a vine, then an apple tree. Just as the same man plants all these seeds, so Autumn sows immortality in heaven and change on earth. Throughout the cosmos he disseminates life and movement the two great elements that comprise Atom and his creation, and so everything that is. Atom is called Father, because he begets all things, and, from his example, the wise hold begetting children the most sacred pursuit of human life. Atom works with nature, within the laws of necessity, causing extinction and renewal, constantly creating creation to display his wisdom. Yet the things that the eye can see are mere phantoms and illusions. Only those things invisible to the eye are real. Above all are the ideas of beauty and goodness. Just as the eye cannot see the being of autumn, so it cannot see these great ideas. They are attributes of autumn alone, and are inseparable from him. They are so perfectly without blemish that autumn himself is in love with them. There is nothing which autumn lacks, so nothing that he desires. There is nothing that Autumn can lose, so nothing can cause him grief. Autumn is everything, Autumn makes everything, and everything is a part of Autumn. Autumn therefore makes himself, this is Autumn's glory. He is all creative, and this creating is his very being. It is impossible for him to ever stop creating, for Autumn can never cease to be. Autumn is everywhere. Mind cannot be enclosed, because everything exists within mind. Nothing is so quick and powerful. Just look at your own experience. Imagine yourself in any foreign land, and, quick as your attention, you will be there. Think of the ocean, and there you are. You have not moved as things move, but you have traveled nevertheless. Fly up into the heavens. You won't need wings. Nothing can obstruct you. Not the burning heat of the sun or the swirling planets. Pass on to the limits of creation. Do you want to break out beyond the boundaries of the cosmos? For your mind, even that is possible. Can you sense what power you possess if you can do all this? Then what about your creator? 
try and understand that autumn is mind. This is how he contains the cosmos. All things are thoughts, which the creator thinks. The living cosmos. The primal mind, which is life and light, being of both sexes, gave birth to the mind of the cosmos. The primal mind is ever unmoving, eternal, and changeless, containing within it this cosmic mind, which is imperceptible to the senses. The cosmos, which sense perceives, is a copy and image of this eternal cosmic mind, like a reflection in a mirror. First of all, and without beginning, is Atom. Second is the cosmos, made in his likeness. As the cosmos is a second god, it is also an immortal being. And because everything in the cosmos is a part of the cosmos, it is impossible that any part of it should die. The cosmos is all life. From its first foundations, there has never existed a single thing which was not alive. There is not, and has never been, and never will be, anything in the cosmos that is dead. Autumn is light, the everlasting source of energy, the eternal dispenser of life itself. Once energy has been dispensed, its supply is governed by eternal cosmic laws. The cosmos has its being within the eternal energy, from which all life issues, so it is impossible for it to ever stop or be destroyed. It is contained and bound together by the eternal life force. The cosmos dispenses this life to all the things within it. It has a twofold movement. Energy is infused into the cosmos from eternity, and it in turn infuses life into all things within it. Mind and soul are manifestations of light and life. Everything moves by the power of soul. The body of the cosmos, within which all bodies are contained, is completely saturated with soul. Soul is entirely illuminated by mind. Mind is totally permeated by atom. Soul fills and encompasses the whole body of the cosmos. It gives life to the great and perfect living creature which is the cosmos, which in turn gives life to all the lesser living creatures it contains. The cosmos is the whole, which generates and nourishes the parts, like a parent caring for its children. It receives its supply of goodness from autumn, and it is this goodness which is the true power of creation. The cosmos is the image of autumn, and since autumn is all goodness, the cosmos is also good. The gods. The mind of the cosmos created from fire and air, the seven administrators who regulate destiny the five visible planets and the sun and moon, whose orbits encompass the world of the senses. These celestial powers known by thought alone are called the gods, and they preside over the world. They are ruled over by the goddess Destiny, who transforms everything according to the law of natural growth, creating from the permanent unchanging reality a permanently changing world. The heavenly bodies are governed by Atom, and from them flows into matter an uninterrupted stream of soul. Matter is like a fertile womb, within which all things are conceived. All forms shape matter, and soul energy ceaselessly changes them, one into another. This process is directed by Atom, who infuses each form with soul, in proportion to its standing in the scale of being. The earth is the storehouse of all matter. 
which it donates and, in return, it receives life from above. Ra, the sun, unites heaven and earth, sending down energy from above and raising up matter from below. He draws life to himself and gives forth life from himself, ceaselessly lavishing light on all. Ra benefits not only heaven, but even the hidden depths of the earth. Unlike Atom, the hidden light, who is only known in thought through attentive contemplation, Ra exists in space and time, and we may see him with our eyes, shining the brightest in the cosmos. Placed in the center and wearing the cosmos like a wreath around him, he lights up above and below. He lets the cosmos go on its way, but never lets it wander. For, like a skillful chariot driver, Ra has tied the cosmos to him, preventing it rushing off in disorder, and his controlling reins are rays of light. The sun is an image of the creator, who is higher than the heavens. Just as the supreme creator gave life to the whole universe, Ra gives life to the animals and plants. His material body is the source of visible light, and, if there be such a thing as a substance not perceptible to the senses, the light of the sun must contain that substance. Yet what it is or how it flows, only autumn knows. The sun continuously pours forth light and life. Ra nurtures all vegetation, gathering the first fruits, produced by the power of his rays, as if in his mighty hands, bringing out sweet perfumes from the plants. In the same way, our souls, like heavenly flowers, are nurtured by the light of autumn's wisdom, and in return, we should use in his service all that grows within us. So before I give my conclusion, I thought I'd mention the introduction of this book on the Hermetica contains 10 sections of which I have only read four to you in this episode. And I just wanted to mention there's also 20 chapters that they translated. They also do sort of more prosaic discussions about the chapters beyond just the more poetic direct translations that I read. So this book has a lot more information than I'm transmitting in this episode. I just wanted to give you a taste of it, and I highly recommend that if it's interesting to you that you pick up a copy of it. I think they've done a really good job with it here. I actually wanted to read more of the chapters for this episode. It was hard to put an end to it, but I also was feeling like I was spending a lot of time going through and editing my voice recordings, and I figure if you're someone who really is interested in this topic, the book is widely available. But I figured I'd let you know the names of the chapters and maybe some of my thoughts on certain ones. So the ones I read for this episode were The Prophecies of Hermes, the initiation of Hermes, the being of Atom, I skipped contemplate creation, read the living cosmos, skipped the circle of time, read the gods, and that was the last one. That was about the planets and how they express the will of Atom or the creator god that is in everything in a way that humans can actually understand it. Whenever I've studied astrology, I've seen that it's remarkable how well it lines up with things in my personal life, but also other people and humanity at large. The stories I've heard is most skeptics who've studied it really end up finding it hard to deny how much truth is transmitted. 
if you're interested in that topic, that book Cosmos and Psyche is a really good place to bridge the gap between our modern or postmodern moment in history with some of this ancient wisdom. After the chapter on the gods is the hierarchy of creation, the creation of mankind, the birth of human culture, man is a marvel, the zodiac and destiny, which is also really interesting because they talk about how understanding our astrological natal chart tells us a lot about the trajectory of our life as well as how it's oriented with different transits. But they mention, or Hermes mentions, that that can be circumvented with certain levels of spiritual cultivation and union with the divine. So I think that's why in Christianity there's sort of a warning against fortune telling and things like astrology is I think that it's sort of considered a distraction from union with God and the divine. In some ways, it can be understood that the closer we are or the more we cling to material existence, the more we're ruled by the destiny written in the stars. The next chapter is the universal and the particular, then the incarnation of the soul, death and immortality, which I also think is a very similar ring to it as the ideas of the Christian afterlife and the immortality of the soul. The next chapter is ignorance of the soul, then knowledge of autumn, rebirth, secret teachings, and finally in praise of autumn. I would say this book on the Hermetica has become one of my favorite books that I've read in a long time. I love reading ancient texts and contemplating them and, and learning from ancient wisdom, and I never take anything as infallible truth. I think of it as something worth contemplating, something that might give us some insights. Even in the text, it mentions the name of autumn is all names, and that autumn is not a name that contains the totality of God, but that it's merely a signifier at a certain time in a certain human culture. I think that's true. Even in the biblical tradition, there's different names such as Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. Some people even argue that Elohim is plural, and there's a whole other way of thinking about what's actually being discussed in the Hebrew Torah or Old Testament of the Bible, which is a bigger topic than I'm willing to get into today. But I also wanted to mention that in the first chapter of the Tao Te Ching, there are lines that translate as without name is the origin of heaven and earth. Having a name is the mother of the 10,000 things, meaning every single thing. And I think this idea about the nature of the divine is well represented in this thinking that it's beyond naming in its truest form of creator, but that all the names do is particularize the universe. I think also the idea of the word of God as the force of creation embodied in flesh as Jesus Christ comes through with an ancient understanding of the idea of word as spoken aloud, as intoned, even as a kind of devotional music or mantra or prayer that itself expresses some kind of divine harmony into the world as we speak it more so than just a written text which would have been the memory of the words so that they might be intoned, especially in sacred places such as temples or cathedrals, ancient megaliths even, all had sacred geometric architecture that allows for the profound resonance of these sacred songs and devotional music and the sacred words of scripture. 
Another thing that comes up for me whenever I'd hear someone make an argument for atheism, which was usually something along the lines of, if there was a god, how could there be so much suffering for this person or that group or myself or someone else I love or whatever it is. And I can understand that reaction if you believe that your material existence is the totality of your existence. So underpinning atheism, in my mind at least, is a belief in materialism. And for me, it's not that materialism isn't true. It's that when you deny the reality of a spiritual nature, a spiritual layer of reality, and the fact that consciousness, from what I've seen, is primarily a spiritual phenomenon that inhabits a material body. And this is really evident in the phenomenon of near-death experiences, which has really shown that people can have verifiable out-of-body and otherworldly experiences, even while physically brain-dead. And if you're interested more in that topic, you can check out the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. When you look at it that way, no matter the suffering in any material experience, the immortality of the soul and the eternity of its journey puts that in a much more limited context. And so there can be meaning even in the greatest horrors. When you see it from this context, everything is synchronicity. And even the devil and the demons work for God because they're part of God's creation and they're there to teach us certain lessons. Many people come around to believing in God after witnessing true evil in the world. As much as our moment in history sometimes frightens or disheartens me, I do see many things to be hopeful for, many seeds of positive change. I think that it's going to have to come from individuals. My perspective is that governing bodies and large institutions are highly corrupted in our period of time, and that the more we expect and wait for them to solve our problems, the longer it's going to take for us to get to the work of doing it ourselves. I love the way that Charles Eisenstein speaks about the mundane work of planting a garden and tending to it as a form of prayer, an act of worship that ripples out into the world because by doing that work lovingly, even on these tiny scales, that's part of the work that everyone can do to make a more beautiful world. That's the reality is the place where we have true traction is just in our small, personal, mundane experience. And by cultivating more spiritual peace in our lives and with those we love and spend time with, even if you may work with people you don't see ever again or see seldom or don't know very well, just showing some care and compassion, not knowing how much suffering someone has been through or maybe is currently going through, we never know if someone's dealing with a chronic illness of themselves or a family member, if they're dealing with grief from loss of someone in their life who died, or just old traumas that haven't been resolved. It can be hard not to be reactive. We all do it. I'm not going to say that I have mastered this completely, but the more we can act like Jesus or live like Buddha or in Taoism, they talk about cultivating a hollow bone which means allowing the emotions to pass through and not be grasped or be clung to, basically to cause a reaction. 
because we'll have emotions from our experiences, but we can try not to be reactive as a consequence of feeling those emotions, but instead to allow them to fully be felt and fully resolve and disperse so that we can respond with clarity and from a place of greater understanding. The way I like to think about it is from the perspective that all acts are selfish. The difference is the magnitude of self that we identify with. What we conventionally call selfish is when we're identifying self as merely our physical body and the boundaries of our physical body. And so a selfish action from that perspective is often at the cost of others or the environment around us, whatever, for the benefit of our physical body. But as we start to expand that idea of self to include our family, our friends, our community, the city where we live, maybe this county or even the state or the nation that we're a part of or the planet we live on or the solar system, the galaxy, the universe that we are embedded in that gave birth to us, that greater sense of self, if we act in alignment with that, then our actions might look more like what we would generally call selfless. But it's not that it's selfless, it's that it's an expanded sense of self. It's a realization of our unity with the divine, with the transcendental nature of God and the Holy Spirit that works through us and in us and that we are a part of. I think that's a universal idea. I see it in the teachings of Jesus, of Buddha, of Lao Tzu, in the Tao Te Ching, I see it in the Vedic scriptures. I think every culture, when it puts its highest wisdom into scripture, some of these core ideas about the nature of divinity and cosmic unity prevail because they are true. There is even a sort of scientific truth to the fact of the unity of the cosmos and the universe being at least as far as we know, born of a quote-unquote Big Bang, means that the universe is a unity, even if we can't see to the ends of it. So on that note, I'll leave you all to contemplate and meditate on the beauty that is the Hermetica and the divine mystery of life. Adios.